with you because this is the first time that we've had Discovering God since March the 8th of last year. So glad to now be getting back truly to, to normal for our church. And I want to tell you what we're going to be doing in this hour over the next few weeks. These two weeks, today and next week, I'm going to be doing just two weeks, a series called The Wisdom Pyramid. You see that up on the screen. And that's so titled because there's a book by that name that I'm going to recommend to you. And it addresses a topic that I wanted us to cover in these uh, first two weeks. I'll explain why. But then two weeks from today, I will not be in the auditorium. I'll be in a classroom, and I will have those who have not taken our newcomers orientation with me. If you've never taken our four-week newcomers orientation, we're offering that starting two weeks from today. So I encourage you to register for that so we know how many notebooks to make for it. You can do that on our website very easily. There's no cost. We just want to know how many. And if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, then, then do that. It gives you information about our church, helps you make a decision as to whether or not this is a place that God would have you to grow and, and serve. No obligation. We don't hassle you after that to see if you're going to join the church or any of that. Gives you the information, and then you prayerfully make a decision about it. That's two weeks from today. So since I'll be doing that, uh, there are going to be a couple of other things going on as well. Our young adults are going to have their own class for four weeks starting on that day as well, two weeks from today, our Crossroads group. And in the auditorium then, we're going to have uh, part of that four weeks, Dr. Combs is going to teach a series on the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian. Did I get the title right? Yeah. And his part of that four weeks is going to be either two or three. On the first of those, two weeks from today, I have, I think, a guest speaker. I won't say who it is yet because I don't know for sure if he's going to, his plane's going to get out on time. It's arriving Sunday morning at like 8.30, but if it's delayed, he won't be able to be here. So Dr. Combs will start either the 15th or the following week, the 22nd. But we'll have uh, other of our guys teaching you during those, those four weeks. The following week after that's over with, we'll all be back in here, but that weekend, which is the weekend of September 10, 11, and 12, we're going to have Rick Thomas with us. Rick Thomas is a biblical counselor that we had with us two years ago. He did then, two years ago, what he's going to do uh, this year, and that is he's going to preach for us. He's also going to handle the Discovering God Hour for us that day. And the two days prior, the 10th and 11th, He's going to lead that marriage retreat that we've been announcing and that I mentioned during the first hour. So I encourage you couples, if you can make it, go to uh, register for the uh, marriage retreat. And those of you that aren't even married, but if you're engaged or seriously thinking about it, then consider it as well. So Rick will be here on September 12th, the following week, September 19th then. We start two new series, one in the worship hour in the book of Acts, and then in this hour, we'll be doing a series called uh, Identity Crisis, Identity Crisis. And for that, we're going to send mailers and invitations out to all of Trenton like we do for these series. We encourage you to invite folks to come for that. The Identity Crisis idea is to look at what the Bible says about who we are as human beings, made in the image of God, who we are as fallen beings, and then what that means for how uh, and who we are in Christ in terms of our identity. And what that means for things like uh, gender identity. Now, we, 
We put that in the description. I was saying at our family meeting last Sunday afternoon, we're not highlighting that. I thought about just doing a series on gender identity, but I thought, you know, we're just coming back, and I don't want news crews out in front quite yet. So I think I'll hold off on that until we're ready to handle that. That's probably coming in the future. But that will be one aspect of it. So September 19th, in this hour, Identity Crisis will be our series. In the meantime, I want to take these two weeks to talk about the Wisdom Pyramid. Before I get into that, though, I have been waiting for almost a year and a half to uh, just rant a little bit. So this is what is sometimes called a point of personal privilege for me to just rant a bit about something I experienced during the whole kind of COVID shutdown and then the semi-shutdown. And it has to do with me having to go shop at a grocery store. Because as those of you know that have been with us for any length of time, I really don't do that. I don't like to do it. When Kim, Kim does it and does it very well, if she needs me to run and get something, I need very explicit instructions for what it is I'm supposed to get and where I'm supposed to go. And I try to go in and leave. But one of the things that happened during COVID was that uh, mom and dad, actually my in-laws, but I treat them like mom and dad, call them mom and dad, they call me their son, and I'm very thankful for that. And I started doing some shopping for dad and mom. And I started going to the Meyer in Flat Rock. And as I started to do this, though very happy to shop for dad and mom, this experience shook my faith in humanity. Now, it would have shaken my faith more had I had much to begin with. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of faith in humanity to begin with. But it started, you know, just in the parking lot. I pull into the parking lot. We're at the beginnings of the, the pandemic. And, you know, we had to wear masks. And at the beginning, people were being very careful, wiping off surfaces, wearing, do you remember we were wearing vinyl gloves? Well, here's the thing. I just... Maybe it's just me, but I just thought when you're done with the paper mask or you're done with the vinyl gloves, you could put them in one of the receptacles at the entrance or that are hanging on poles all over the parking lot. But no, we have vinyl gloves and we have masks laying in the parking lot. Anybody else experience that? We were, all right. So it started that way. You know, you see that when you're pulling in. I want to park the car. And I noticed that as people park their cars, maybe it was worse during the pandemic, but the yellow lines are pretty much just suggestions for where you park your car and how you park it. And there are a lot of people who really don't have cool cars, but who think they need to do the diagonal park and take up, and take up two spaces. I'm going to do that with my 03 Taurus one of these days, just see what kind of rise I get out of people. But then you go inside. When you go inside, they have the carts there. And it turns out they have two size carts. They got the big carts, the large carts, and they have the, the small carts. Now, the large carts and the small carts will play a role a little bit later. How do you identify the cart that, um, how, as you choose whether you're gonna be shopping a lot, big cart, not that much, small cart. I wanna know from you shoppers, how do you identify the cart that does not have the bad wheel? Because apparently people know how to identify it because I'm the only one who has it. Every time I choose a cart, it immediately has the bad wheel. Every stinking time. But nevertheless, I soldier on. One of the other things that shook my faith, though, is that when, I'm put, when you're pushing the cart, do you think it would be a good idea for folks to consider while you're doing that that there still may be other people 
in the store. So that as you come around the end of an aisle on, say, two wheels, I might be there. As you make an abrupt stop because you remembered you needed something back at the other, there might be somebody behind you. The store did not empty out just because that came up. And then when you get into the aisles themselves, at the beginning especially, bare shelves, especially in the paper aisle. Rations. I still have not figured out for sure why toilet paper was in such short supply. I have a theory that because people were not going to work, they could no longer steal toilet paper from work. <laughs> and so more people were buying toilet paper than were accustomed to doing that. That's just my theory. But I do know that some of you need to repent of hoarding. Because during that period of time, I happened to go to a couple C.B. Sears houses, drop something off, pick something up, and they opened up their garage. And in a couple of instances, I saw the Fort Knox of toilet paper. <laughs> I know now where all the paper products went, to a couple of garages of C.B. Sears. Now, I'm not going to mention who the C.B. Sears are right now. But if it comes in handy for me in the future, I may, I may do that. I started to get my routine down for shopping for dad and mom. I even came to enjoy the actual shopping to see how quickly I can complete their relatively small list. But then there's checkout. And there were long, there were long lines. There were shorter lines in the self-checkout. Now, I have a degree in computer science. But I find myself talking back to the voice coming out of the scanner. I did place the item in the bagging area. I audibly say that. And I'm so bad at it that I have to have somebody come over and assist me, so much so that I gave up on the scanning thing and I waited in, in line. Now I finally get out of there, often as I say with assistance from the person whose job it is to assist clueless people. And I go out, I unload my stuff into the car, I'm gonna dutifully place my cart in the corral now, you remember the small and the large carts? And I go over to the corral, and there's two sections. And you, with a divider right in between, and one has a big sign that says large carts, and the other one says small carts. But here's the part that did me in. There are small carts in the large cart section. And there are large carts in the small cart section. I'm mortified. I wonder who would do this. And then I remember that during my shopping over these several weeks, I've seen some CB Sears in Meyer, in Flat Rock. Now, I'm not going to accuse those CB Sears, but I'm looking at you, Kim Moser. <laughs> and I'm looking at you, Sally Meadows. So there's Kim right over there. Sally beat a hasty retreat, apparently, but you all tell her that I talked about her behind her back, okay? So my faith in humanity has not been restored, but that was my experience, and I just wanted to get some of that off my chest. So if you go to the store, I might be there. And if I'm there, I'm watching you. I'm watching how you park. I'm watching how you push your cart in the store. I'm watching whether you put your cart in the right side of the corral when you leave the place, okay? All right. I feel better. Today, we start a two-week series 
called, as you see on the screen, the Wisdom Pyramid. And I'll explain a, some more about that a bit later. But two weeks ago, during the worship hour, the message was on what the Bible says about the imperative of, of honesty, that we communicate only what's true. That is, we do that because it's consistent with the character of God. Because God is truthful, we're to reflect truth in all of our communication. All that God affirms is true, and therefore all that we affirm must be true as well. Now, I've used that word affirm on purpose. We might quote something that's false, but either by our explicit repudiation of it or by the context in which we present it, we're not necessarily affirming it as true. We may quote someone else who said something false without affirming that it's true. So you could say that it's okay that not everything we say is true, but it's certainly not okay that anything we affirm fail to be true. For example, it's the case that in the Bible, uh, not every statement that you find in the Bible itself is true. Because God does not affirm every statement in the Bible. Sometimes the Bible quotes Satan. Quotes Satan, and who is, according to Jesus, the father of lies. In fact, the very first time we're introduced to Satan in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, and you all know he tells an outright lie. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, contrary to what God said, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, you will certainly die. He just says flat out, you will not certainly die. So that's what I mean when I say not every statement in the Bible is true. That statement is false, obviously. It was said by Satan to be true from him, wanting them to believe that it's, that it's true. And the fact that he said it is true, but what he said is false. It's an accurate record, but it's a false affirmation. Now, we should then develop habits of truthfulness in our speech, but also in our use of social media, so that when people read something that we wrote or that we forward, they can rely on it as true. Otherwise, friends, we should not affirm it. Followers of Jesus need to be honest and trustworthy. And that necessity is seen in something Jesus said about taking oaths in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus said. I have it on the screen. You have it, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So what's going on there? This is Jesus talking about the need for us to be absolutely truthful people. I want to take a little bit to explain it. There's an ancient document called the Mishnah, which was compiled before the time of Jesus. It was written as a catalog of traditions that were handed down by Jewish religious leaders, and it contained a whole section that were devo was devoted to oaths, and when they're binding and when the oaths are not binding. According to one commentator, the swearing of oaths had degenerated into a system of rules as to when you could lie and when you could not. The results were incredible. 
There was an ongoing pandemic of frivolous swearing. Now, when it says swearing, it's not cursing, but it's as in swearing and an oath. And oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. By your life, people would swear an oath, or by my beard, <laughs> or say, they would say something like, may I never see the comfort of Israel if I fail to fulfill this vow. There was an inevitable trivialization of everyday language and integrity. It became common practice to convince another that you were telling the truth, but all the while lying by bringing some person or imminent object into reference and swearing on that or them. For instance, one rabbi taught that if one swore by Jerusalem, one was not bound. But if one swore toward Jerusalem, then what you said was binding, evidently because doing it toward Jerusalem implied something about the na name of God. And all of that produced in the people a spiritual kind of schizophrenia. I'm not telling the truth, but I'm not lying. And that's what was going on in Jesus' day. And that's why he says what he does. That's what he's correcting. This whole system of oaths was built on the ubiquity of lying. That is, people lie so much that they required oaths to back up their claims. In fact, we see our tendency to lie, humanity's tendency to lie, in the fact that God himself took oaths. Now, I'm going to explain, so just stay with it. But the fact that God takes oaths is actually an indication of how prone we are to, to lie. But first, let's just see the fact that, indeed, God did swear oaths. Genesis 22, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Hebrews chapter 6, God confirmed his promise to Israel with an oath. Psalm 132, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. So why is God doing something that he tells us Jesus said not to do? John Stott said, it's not to increase God's credibility, but to elicit and confirm our faith in what he says. Another commentator says, God does not take oaths because his credibility is in doubt, but because we, having told and heard so many lies, have learned to be doubters. We're accustomed to breaking our word and having others break their word to us. Therefore, God knows we need assurance of his reliability. He knows that our standards are so low, we expect falsehood from everyone, even him. So for our sake, he takes an oath to guarantee his word. That's why I said we see our tendency to lie in the fact that God himself condescended to take oaths. God would have no reason to take an oath if it were not for our deceitfulness and our expectation that people often lie. Now, the fact that God often took oaths and test is, is testimony to the fact that we're accustomed to lying and being lied to, but, but what do our oaths show about us? They show that we don't think we can be trusted, so we have to give some extra oomph to our promises. Take, for example, a, a father who on Thursday says to his child, if you help me clean up the yard today, I'll take you out for ice cream on Saturday. And the child may reply with something like, do you promise? Now, the request of the child for a promise is a testimony against us. It shows the child has learned she cannot entirely trust her father's word. In the past, she cleaned up the yard, never received the ice cream. 
When the child points this out to her father, he says, I forgot, or something came up, or you should have reminded me. So the child has learned to seek a guarantee. When she asks, do you promise, she means, do you mean it? Can I count on you? And that's why Jesus says then, in verse 37 of Matthew 5, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That is, we should be people whose character reflects God, is honest, so that those who know us should be able to trust us without embellishment. There was a group of people during Jesus' time. You know, in the Bible you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This group's not mentioned in the New Testament, but they existed as well as very devout, cult-like uh, religious people, the Essenes. And they said this, he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. So private oaths to those who know us should be completely unnecessary. But what about public, taking public oaths? We go into court, a courtroom, we're asked to solemnly swear or affirm to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth. Now, I don't think it's the case that Jesus is prohibiting public oath-taking, because here it is. We can take oaths on occasions when those who hear us need it, since they do not know us. <laughs> and as we've already seen, humanity assumes falsehood. So that's why you have to do this. You have to do it for the benefit of other people who have learned by their own lying and being lied to. But otherwise, you should be able to go into court and be assumed to be willing to tell the truth. So this issue of our truthfulness is extremely important to God because we're made to reflect Him, and He, God, is always truthful. So when we read what others are affirming to be true, we need to determine whether, in fact, it is. And never, never, never pass it along unless it is so. If we don't know something to be true, then we temper our language to allow for exceptions since we're not omniscient. I sometimes receive articles from Dr. Combs. He emails to me, and he will sometimes preface it with something like, this seems right to me. What do you think? This seems right to me. Now notice, he's saying, I'm not omniscient. I don't know if everything in it is right. This seems right to me. But if we're to be credible witnesses, we should not just forward stuff regularly and then just throw it out there and say, do your research. <laughs> when Dr. Combs sends something, he reads it thoroughly and passes it on because it seems true. So friends, I'm going to talk about the uniqueness now of the age in which we live now and the challenges that we have in being truthful people as God requires, so that what we say can be banked on, can be counted on. But integrity means you never have to delete your tweet. <laughs> you know, integrity, you know, for a Christian means that our statements should age well. I've had to think about that myself, particularly over this last year and a half. We started a blog, a weekly blog. And once those things are out there, they're out there forever. And so I should be able to go back 18 months, 16 months, read what I said then, and say, yeah, 
That's true. Or yes, I said it in such a way that it was accurate, that it can be affirmed. So why am I talking about this then now? Well, I need you to understand, CBC brothers and sisters, that in some ways my agenda for what I teach and how I apply what I teach is set by you, by what you're struggling with and I may be struggling with as well. What you, we, are being confronted with in the world, what challenges we're having to face in the culture. As a pastor, I, I try to keep my ear to the ground, so to speak, so that I have an idea of what's going on and what we need to hear, even if sometimes we don't want to hear it. Now, I don't, <laughs> to state the obvious, I don't do that perfectly. Those are judgment calls about what we need to hear and how much we need to hear it. I get that. But that's the thought process. That there's a sense in which what I, what I believe is important is set by what's happening with you, what's happening with us, what I'm, what I'm hearing. I never just talk about something here just because it interests me, but rather because I think it addresses something we need. And this issue of truthful communication is one that people in general in our day are struggling with, not only because lying comes naturally to sinful people, but now because we have even more opportunity to take false input in and to pass it on to others. That's why I'm taking these two weeks for the wisdom pyramid. It's named for this book that I recommend. We have 15 copies in our resource center. It's a book designed to help us wisely determine what we should read and listen to and in what proportions. I'm going to quote from that book uh, before we're, we're done. But what prompted me to think this was an issue that I should address, something that we're struggling with, with and we're going to continue to struggle with if it's not corrected, and it's going to continue to be a problem for us, is this. I get correspondence from you, often with questions, sometimes to get my thoughts on an article or something. And as I read what I read what I was re receiving from folks, I was alarmed at the sources of information that we're relying on. I would look at the article and the website or the magazine or whatever, and would have things in it that were often conspiratorial, alarmist, fear-mongering. And I'm looking at where this came from, and I'm going, I'm not even familiar with what that thing is. And I do a reasonable amount of reading, but I don't even know what that is. So where are our people getting this stuff? For example, don't raise your hand to this, but have you heard of the Epic Times? The stuff in it fits, fits the description that I just gave. But in addition to that, it's something run by a Chinese religious cult called the Fulan Falun Gong. It's not reliable, but I've received things from Christians, some in our congregation, some outside. And by the way, I don't remember who, so I'm not talking to anyone personally here. I'm not thinking of you personally. Or there's this website that I've received things from called American Greatness. Good title. American Greatness. American Greatness ran a 
a poem. It's only existed for uh, a little while, but it ran a poem. I'm going to read it for you. The global south deigns to redeem you. Be grateful, for they generate revenue. For the masters you failed to serve, those men the worms who pose to conserve, those values you have clearly lost, this is the capitalist Pentecost. Submit to the modernist spirit of avarice. Defer now to the mocha-skinned Lazarus. Know this, you are more rich than him, if not in cash, than in your white skin. What's the global south? The mocha-skinned Lazarus? You are more rich than him, if not in cash, than in your white skin? Back in February, a pastor friend passed on to me and others an, an article warning about how the U.S. is heading down the path that, quote, ultimately led to Nazism's fascist domination of Germany. I thought you might be interested in the linked article, he said. Now, I'm going to talk about the source for the linked article in a second. But when he sent that to me, it was just for him very clear that we're going down the path of Nazi Germany. And as I say, I, you know, I know the Antichrist is coming. <laughs> so I know one of, the day, one of these days the alarmists are going to be right. But like for now, I'm not thinking swastikas are going to be in vogue. For most of us, I'm not, I hadn't even thought about that, frankly. But for him, it was pretty clear. And the article he sent us to was a site called Revolver News. The artic that article and other articles on that site were like I described earlier. The fear-mongering, the alarmist, the conspiratorial, Revolver News. Had no idea. It turns out Revolver News was started last year by a guy named Darren Beatty. He was a speechwriter in the Trump White House, but he was fired in August of 2018 for having spoken at a conference in 2016 alongside white supremacists. So good for the administration for, for firing him. Well, you know, maybe he just made a mistake back in 2016. But on January 6th, anybody remember that date, January 6th? Anything big happened that day? That was the day of the insurrection attempt at the Capitol. That's coincidental, I assume, but while that was happening, he was busy sending out vile racist tweets, a series of tweets saying various African Americans must, quote, learn their place and, quote, take a knee to MAGA, make America great again. That's the guy who started Revolver News, and I got a pastor friend sending me stuff for that. The list could be very long. Breitbart is run by a guy named Steve Bannon. Google it. So now the alarm for me was what I was reading, and also the fact that although as I said, I read fairly widely. My reading had never taken me to these places, but my friends are all getting their news. Not all, many are getting their news from these sources. Now, I wrote a, a blog some months ago on 
how when you get online, friends, where you go, the sites you go to is being tracked. Do you understand that? So that a profile of you is being developed. So you, you, know, you start out and you're interacting on Facebook or whatever you're doing, and they gather that you're a religious type and that you're a conservative type. And so the algorithm now is programmed to try to feed you stuff that they think will be clickbait for you. So then stuff comes up and you see this headline and you go, what? And you click on it. When you click on it, it takes you to Epic News or it takes you to Revolver News or it takes you to whatever. And then you read it and your mouth agape and you forward it to some people and you keep clicking and they keep profiling and they keep sending you more stuff. All stuff to send you deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. That's what I said in that blog. I would encourage you to read that because that's what happens. And it also explains why I don't get that stuff. Because I don't click on that stuff. One of the suggestions that I'll make next week is don't click. <laughs> don't click on the clickbait. And if you don't click on the clickbait, then your profile is different. And you get fed different stuff. And beyond the concerning sources is the fact that some of us only get our news, some only from one source. I think it was about 10 years ago that I heard columnist David Brooks on television talking about the information silos that we're now divided into. You know what he means by that? That we've all got our own little areas where we get our information. So now you, we have so much information available through cable and social media and radio that now I can choose the one that tells me what I want to hear. Back when I was a kid, you didn't have that. You had three channels, you had three networks, I thought when we had this now opening up of cable that this would be actually a good thing because it would democratize information more and it would mean that the networks couldn't just feed you whatever. I, I, I get all that because they did feed you whatever for a long time. But now what has happened is it's created these silos. So now you, I, any of us can just go to the places regularly that just tell us more and more of what we want to hear. And so David Brooks commented on that, and he said he'd heard, and he kind of chuckled, he says, but I hear, and this is about 10 years ago, that some people, now he mentioned Fox News, but this could apply to CNN or MSNBC or anybody that you just go to for your stuff and you keep it on 24-7, that it's on all the time so that the logo is kind of burned into the screen down at the bottom. And he chuckled. But you get the, the idea. And you see, that's new in our day. It's new that people have the option to do that and are increasingly doing it. So just go to my go-to source, put it on, and then almost subliminally in the background, whether I'm at work with the radio on with the angry radio guy talking, or whether I have the TV on at home and I've got it, whoever it is, every day, I may be busy, I may be doing stuff, but I'm catching the worldview that I'm supposed to catch. I'm increasingly alarmed by it, scared by it. This, uh, I, I, 
A couple of weeks ago, I was in the Chicago area and attended a uh, pastor's meeting. And we were sitting around a, a bonfire after, and the guys were talking about, anybody want to guess what they were talking about? Um, if you read my blog this week, they were talking about critical race theory. Now, mind you, pretty much none of us really know what critical race theory is, but that doesn't stop us from talking about it. And this brother and I were talking, not debating, not arguing, just talking. And he, tell, he told me that he listens to one guy all day when he's at work. I didn't recognize the name. I think it was Steven Crowder, I think. But I listened to one guy, whoever it was. And he says, this guy is great. I listen to him every day, all day, I'm, you know, for hours a day, and I'm, while I'm doing my work. Because what he does see is when he makes a claim, he then shows you the document. So while I'm working and he says, hey, so here it is, and he puts it up on the screen, I stop and I take a look and I go, yeah, and then I move on. Okay, that's his level of research. Okay, yeah. Stephen just told me, or whoever it was, just told me the truth. Well, you know, all, all that person did was just feed you the quote they wanted to feed you. It may be true. It may not. But being able to just glance at it and go, oh, yeah, doesn't qualify as actually researching the thing. So because of all of this, I was glad to see the Wisdom Pyramid published. I'm going to offer some thoughts from the book next week on how to balance and improve our information intake. But for now, I want to introduce you to, to what it says. It says our world has more information but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity. More stimulation, less synthesis. More distraction, less stillness. More pontificating, less pondering. More opinion, less research. More speaking, less listening. More to look at, less to see. More amusements, less joy. We have vertigo from the barrage coming at us from every direction every day. We're nauseous from the tilt-a-whirl nature of our constantly changing, always unstable world described in often, often contradictory and whiplash-inducing feeds of fragmented and partisan news. Our ears are bleeding from the screeching multitudes who daily assault our senses. Everyone has a megaphone and no one has a filter. Our eyes are strained, brains overstimulated, souls weary. We're living in a, an epistemological crisis. It's hard to know if anything can, reliably, can be reliably known. We are resigned to a new normal where the choice seems to be trust everything or trust nothing. Or maybe the choice is trust nothing or trust only yourself, a seemingly logical strategy, but one that sadly only inflames our epistemological sickness. How can one flourish in a world like this? How can one fortify one's immunity and be healthy amidst a contagion of foolishness whose spread shows no sign of stopping? How can Christians become storehouses of wisdom in an era when more and more sickly people will be looking for the cure? We need a better diet of knowledge and better habits of information intake. To become wise in the information age where opinions, sound bites, diversions, and distractions are abundant, but wisdom is scarce, then we need to be more discerning about what we consume. 
We need a diet comprised of lasting, reliable sources of wisdom rather than the fleeting, untrustworthy information that bombards us today. A diet heavy on what fosters wisdom and low on what fosters folly. The food pyramid. Y'all remember, the, some of you remember the food pyramid? That was introduced by the United States Department of Agriculture in 1992. It was designed to help people understand the folly of eating only French fries, soda, and candy and the wisdom of eating grains, fruits, and vegetables. The food pyramid was a brilliant visual guide for healthy eating habits, offering guidance for how many, how many servings of each group help form a balanced diet. We need something similar for our habits of information intake. We need guidance for how to daily navigate the glut of information available to us, an ordering framework for navigating the noise and the mess of our cultural moment. We need a wisdom pyramid. The Oxford Dictionaries declared post-truth to be the international word of the year in 2016, just five years ago. Post-truth, that's, that's after truth. And post-truth they defined as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The new post-truth normal was underscored in early 2017 when Time posed the question, is truth dead on its cover? And that cover was designed in such a way to mirror a Time magazine cover from 50 years earlier then ask the question, is God dead? And those two covers, even though they're half a century apart, they tell an important story. Without God as an ultimate standard of truth, all we have are truths. Your truth, my truth. Truths as interpreted by individuals, to each their own. You do you. It's no wonder the world is now is confused as it is. You do away with God, you do away with objective truth. But why are Christians so confused? I mean, I can see that from the world, but why do I get so many telling me I don't know what or who to believe? And I'm not talking about your Christian faith. I'm not talking about is Jesus God and did Jesus die for our sins? But I'm just being bombarded, and I don't know what or who to believe. This onslaught of information posing as truth is having all kinds of negative effects. From the time of the introduction of the iPhone in 2007, there's been a precipitous decline in mental health, especially among young people. Generation Z, or iGen, as one psychologist called them. Now, those of you that are part of the Apple cult, Pastor Larry is in the back, and he's, he's part of the Apple cult. He's a devotee of all things Apple. Dr. Combs is pretty close as well. He could be a high priest in the Apple cult also. I use Apple products. I have an iPhone. I'm not part of the Apple cult. Those guys are. Okay? But I mean no offense to just the iPhone and Apple products. Just smartphones, just to having at your fingertips all of this information and I understand that correlation is not causation, but it's probably not coincidental that so many of our young people are now having so many struggles. 
That psychologist who coined that term iGen wrote a book in 2017. Here's the, here's the title. iGen, colon, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, and what that means for the rest of us. That's the title. Okay. But I think she's probably onto something. And I think we as Christians, as people of truth, need to take a little bit of time to talk about the information that we're taking in and go on a diet based upon a wisdom pyramid. That's what we're going to do. Now, I'm not one to brag, but I'm supposed to be done at noon. You may all check your watches and your, and your iPhones, and you will see that it's exactly noon. And I've completed exactly what it is I wanted to say for today. And so we will be dismissed with this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a great week.